0: good morning it is good to see you this morning appreciate the enthusiasm that was great Daniel chapter 6 if you have your Bibles that's where we'll be momentarily a couple quick housekeeping things in a sermon last week I said that David was 17 years old Uh, chances are real good I confused David with Joseph Joseph is said to be 17 years old we're not actually told how old David was we are told he's a young man and so uh, uh, the elders every week stand up and hold up the Bible and say, this is the book we go by. And so we just mean to get things right when we say them. And if the Bible doesn't say he was 17, then I don't want to say he was 17, but it did. Uh, he was a young man, though. Verse 33 of chapter 17, 1 Samuel, as well as verse 42. This morning, we continue, or we finish actually, a a short series we started. We had a two-part series a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, we we had VBS, and so we kind of took a couple of weeks off. Uh, Father's Day was in there too. I don't know if that affected it or not. But we were talking about how should the righteous behave in a world of sin. How should the righteous behave in the world of sin? And we said at the time, it was a total of six points. We noted three of them that morning, and we want to finish that thought up this morning with three others. Uh, At that time, the three points were, we should intercede like Abraham. You remember God looking for a man to intercede on behalf of of sinners, and uh, we should do that for the world. We should be holy like Joseph. We talked about that, and that was really a good timing because Joseph was our VBS, and so we should be holy. Joseph was holy. And finally, we talked about trusting God. We should trust God like Job, and we looked at those three examples. This morning, we look at three others, and we begin here with Daniel. And so, our first point this morning, fourth in the series, would be that we are to pray to God like Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse number 10— The Bible says, now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered into his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling and on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had previously done. Uh, This is significant and important because there are individuals who are opposing Daniel. And that's what kind of leads to these events. Daniel has been faithful to God, and Daniel has been praying to God, and Daniel has made quite a significant impression in the nation. If you go back to verse number 3, you'll get a sense of that here in chapter 6, where the Bible says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. It seems that jealousy and envy relative to God's people is a pretty consistent theme in Scripture. Daniel's ascent is expressly a problem for other people, and they knew things about Daniel. Among them, they knew that this was a faithful and devout and praying man. We open up the book and you can see that about Daniel, who coincidentally was also a young man. It got me to thinking that young people don't have to wait in life, experience a hundred bad things to be wise people. The Bible doesn't say that age is the beginning of wisdom, it doesn't say that. It actually says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. When can you start fearing the Lord? You can do that as a young person. And you can become wise early in your life. You don't have to go and experience a lot of bad things to learn you shouldn't do them. Instead, you could simply submit to God and heed His Word and follow after that. Daniel was just that kind of person. Here in chapter 1 and verse number 8, as the king has tried to— for lack of a better word, corrupt the young Hebrew men and turn them into good Babylonians. Verse number 8 of this chapter says, but Daniel had made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He made up his mind. I would urge that Daniel's mind was likely made up before he ever got to Babylon. He was already faithful to God. He was part of the seed royal. He was among the ones in whom there was no blemish. He was among the choices of the nation. Daniel didn't decide this when he got to Babylon. He had purposed in his heart he wasn't going to defile himself. And now the king has petitioned or or propositioned him with something. But the mind was already made up. I only say that because sometimes when we're talking to young people, we tell them, make up your mind in the peace and safety of your home, what kind of person you're going to be. Don't decide when I get off to college, when I get in the world, when they toss me things and offer me things, then I'll decide. No, it'll be too late. Don't do that. Make up your mind now that you won't defile yourself. In fact, that would be true of beyond young people. Sometimes older people go out with their coworkers and they say, I didn't have a choice. I just had to. No, make up your mind before you go or don't go. Daniel made up his mind. When Daniel made up his mind, a consistent thing happens in Scripture. That would be verse number 9. The Bible says, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God always takes care of his people. Daniel made up his mind to be faithful to God. God gave Daniel favor in the sight of the captains. In fact, by the end of the time, verse number 17 following, it becomes very clear. Verse number 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence. And in every literature and wisdom, Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And verse 18 says, then at the end of the days which King specified for presenting them before the commander, the official present for Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Nishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. How did they get there? They made up their mind. God gave them favor. And now they stand head and shoulders above everybody else. In fact, verse 20, the end of that verse says, they were found to be 10 times better than the magicians and the conjurers. This continues in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, and because he can't remember, can't tell the dream, he can't tell the interpretation, he calls in his counselors and his wise men, and they can't tell him either the dream or the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says he will kill all of them. When Daniel hears of this, over and about verse number 17, Daniel went to his house, informed his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Verse 19 says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Daniel spends the rest of this chapter praising God, or at least down to verse 23, praising God for giving them this understanding. He then shares the, the, the vision and he tells Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the image, and by the end of this chapter, notice verse 49. Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. This continues throughout the book. These men are faithful to God. And ultimately, even when the administration changes, Daniel is still part of that court and part of that ascent. And these individuals have a problem with Daniel. One of the things that God's people must understand and one of the things that people who attack God's people must understand is that when you are attacked by the world, when the world gives itself to sin, and when Christians and individuals who stand up for righteousness, God's people, when they are under attack and when the world does this to them, the thing that needs to be understood is it's never about us. It's always about the God in whom we put our faith. And they understand that and God understands that. Sometimes we don't understand that. But notice chapter 6 in verse 4 and verse number 5. Daniel is ascending in verse number 3. He's put over the entire kingdom. Then the commanders and satraps began to find, trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs. But they could not find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This is their conclusion. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. We can't get him. There's nothing he does that we can find fault. We can't see him. I know what we should do. We should figure out a way to make it impossible for him to remain faithful to his God. And they devise a plan. And so they convinced the king to write a law that says for the next 30 days, you can't make a prayer to any god except him. And any prayer made to anyone except him, that person should be put to death. And the king signs it into law. Unique feature about the Medes and Persians is that the laws of the Medes and Persians was unalterable. Not even the king himself could change his own law. If he wrote a law and decreed it, then that stood, and he couldn't even change it. And when he found out that it was Daniel, they sprung it on him later. They said, you know that Daniel, he's still praying. And you know that Daniel, he was still praying. In fact, slide down to verse number 10. Notice that the Bible says, now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed he entered into his house now in his roof chamber he had the windows open you could look in there you could see him praying did daniel know what they had done yes the bible says now when daniel knew that the decree was signed but the decree said if you pray you'll be put to death somebody might say well he could have closed the windows he could have prayed and he could have closed the windows that might be a thought Somebody else might say, well, just don't pray that day. Maybe pray away from the window. Maybe just pray in another place. But maybe Daniel knew what they were trying to do. Maybe Daniel knew that they were trying to find fault against him and his God. Maybe Daniel was also aware. But it seems very clear Daniel had done this before, and not see any need to stop now. The word when is in the first part of the verse, but keep reading. He had his windows open toward Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. You know, if we're in chapter 6, we started in chapter 1, you know who gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chamberlain in chapter 1? Oh, that would be God. You know who in chapter 2 saved Daniel's life by giving him the understanding of the vision and the dream of Nebuchadnezzar? That would be God. We didn't read it, but in chapter 3, you know that's the fiery furnace, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are thrown in, it's turned up seven times hotter. You know who saved them? That would be God. And now you've devised a plan to stop me from praying to God? I don't think so. No, you know what we'll keep doing? Daniel said, I'll keep praying to God. You know what happened next is they came and they arrested him. And they took him to the lion's den. You know what we don't read in the Bible? Daniel went kicking and screaming. (laughs) You know what we don't read in the Bible? Daniel said, I'll quit, I'll quit, don't throw me in. You know Daniel doesn't say that. No, but what we do read, though, is that the king couldn't sleep that night. He didn't actually have anything against Daniel. He was very fond of Daniel. The king stayed up all night worried sick about what would happen to Daniel and whether or not he would be all right, not Daniel. In fact, if you go over to about verse number number 20, it Bible says, When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's den? Brothers and sisters, can I ask you to to do yourself, and I'll try to do the same and do myself a favor, and that is appreciate the fact that this is about God and not make it about us. You know in a foreign nation, you know who they don't know. You in a nation full of idolatry, you know who they don't know. They don't know Jehovah. You know who does? The faithful Jewish people who went over there. You know that's no time to turn against Jehovah. That's no time to lose faith in Jehovah. What makes him different than every other God? Because you can throw his people into fire, and he can control the fire. That's what makes him different. What makes him different? You can have a dream that nobody can tell you, but he can tell you. What makes him different? You can throw his servant into a lion's den. You can stay up all night. Daniel probably had a good night's rest. And then you can ask, is he able? Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king, I've committed no crime. And here's the thing the world doesn't understand. You aren't attacking Daniel. You're attacking his God. And what ends up happening is every time that happens in the Bible, the wicked lose. And God and his people when? What happened to these people? You just got to keep reading. Verse 23 says, Then the king was very pleased, gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he trusted in God. But the king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. The wicked don't win, friends. The faithful do. Daniel was praying before there was a law daniel was praying when there was a law and daniel will be praying to the end of his life we won't read it but daniel is praying in chapter 9 verses 3 and 4 verse 13 verse 17 verse 21 daniel lived a prayerful life but he was surrounded by sin what did he do he just kept praying to god and trusting in him our lord said as much Luke 18, 1, men are always to pray and not to faint. You know, when you're waking up every day and you're going and looking at this world, how's your prayer life? You know what the world does is it really encourages us to practice our faith by their behavior. But prayer is not designed to be just for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Prayer is not designed to be only when I want something. Prayer is not designed to be, give me, give me, give me. And if you don't, then I don't really trust you or believe you. Prayer is not designed to fix them. Prayer is designed to help us live among them. And Daniel prayed. What should we do when the world gives itself to sin? How's your prayer life? This will be a real good time to get closer and closer to God and evidence more and more that my trust is in you, Father. Number two. What should we do when the world gives itself to sin? We should fight the good fight for God like Paul did. That's what he told Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. And that's exactly what Paul did. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, he summarizes it with these words, for I am now ready. I am now ready to be offered. Time of my departure is at hand. Paul says three things about himself. He says, number one, I fought a good fight. Number two, he says, I finished my course. Number three, he says, I have kept the faith. The result of that follows. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous God, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. From the time we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus, potentially in Acts chapter 6, certainly in 7 and 8, but by chapter 9, he's persecuting the church, but he meets Jesus and becomes a Christian. Eventually, we know him as Paul, the apostle. And from that time on, Paul has been fighting the good fight every time we find him. That's what's happening. In fact, somebody said with Paul, it was either a riot or a revival. Seems to be the case with all of his life. Note a couple of instances. You have your Bible. Look there in Acts chapter 14. I fought a good fight, he says. Acts chapter 14 and verse number 19, the Bible says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds. And that's a constant theme in Paul's life. He'll go into the synagogue, he'll reason out of the Scriptures, some people will start to believe, sometimes Gentiles will show up and want to hear the same message, and there will be a contingent of Jews who don't want people to hear about Christ and the cross and the gospel and the resurrection, and they will come in behind them and stir up the people. They do as much here. The Bible says having won over the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Sometimes you hear people talk about punishments and things, and they say, uh, generally this is older people, and, and they're remembering their parents, I remember when my dad used a belt Oh, that's nothing. My dad would tell me to go get your own switch. Oh, that's nothing. They would braid them together for me, and and we just go on and on. Listen, what's it like to be stoned? Best as I can understand, there's a hole that they put you in, and people stand outside of that hole, and they just throw stones at you until you die. Best I can understand. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a small rock. Some people have rock fights when they're little. This is not that. This is, they stoned Paul. You know what Paul did when they stoned him? Bible says they dragged him out of the city and left him, supposing he was dead. Keep reading. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up. Into the city the next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After that, he preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. They returned. Where did they go to? Back to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. To do what? Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You talk about empowering. What if you were there? You talk about encouraging, what if you were there? Like, right, That's the one they stoned the other day. That's the one they drug and laid out the city. He's back? Yes! And what's he doing? He's strengthening us. Paul says, I fought a good fight. A couple chapters later, Acts chapter 16, look over in verse 22. What did they do? Same thing. The crowds rose up together against them. The chief magistrate tore their clothes, their robes off of them, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. They ordered them to be—they uh, they commanded the jailer to guard them, securely having received of them the command. He threw them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises and hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul said, I fought a good fight. He did. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 22, down to the end of the chapter, you'll hear Paul enumerate some of the things he went through, some of the things in his fight along the way. And he will say in verse number, verse, number 20, uh, verse number 24, he says, five times I received of the Jews 39 lashes. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers, he says, from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all of these external things, he says, the daily care of the churches. Now he's near the end of his life, and he says, I fought a good fight. Paul's not bragging here in 2 Corinthians 11, I wouldn't want you to think that. No, Paul in fact calls this foolishness, and he's only saying it because the false teachers are being believed as they brag about their service to God. Paul says, listen, since you're listening to that, let me offer you then some of this foolishness and let me tell you what I've done. But to him it's foolishness, he only glories in the Christ and the cross. But you can't help appreciate what he went through in fighting this fight. Paul says, I fought, I fought the fight. I've run the course. I finished. I did that. What should we do when the world is full of sin? Every day seems to wake up worse than we left it the next day. What should we do? Fight! Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold On eternal life it's not a physical fight but it's a fight we're not trying to do to them what they're doing to us but we're fighting for the faith our faith our continuance our endurance I'm going to fight to stay faithful to Jesus I'm not going to let you just move me off of the Christ they threatened Daniel with the lion's den and death They threatened the other Hebrew boys with the furnace and the fire. Neither of them took up arms to fight. But they did fight. They just remained faithful to God. That's the fight. The Bible is going to enjoin this upon us. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, I run, I fight, not as one beating the air. I'm not just going through the motions. Isn't it interesting that they says about Daniel, There is nothing we can get on him unless we find something about him and his God. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be said about us? You can't get to them. You can't get him. Boy, I've been trying to get him. He has been on my radar. I've been trying everything. I can't get him. Maybe if we can pit him against his God. Maybe if we can fix it so he has to make a decision about whether or not, you know, that's exactly what they try to do. We will cancel you or you will give up Jesus. We will fire you or you will give up Jesus. You know, that's exactly what the people in the Bible are going through. And Paul says, I fought a good fight. Why is it a good fight? Because it's a fight of faith, it's not a physical fight. We, 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 we don't fight physically. We don't do what's done to us. In fact, it's just the opposite. You have your Bibles. Look at Ephesians 6. It is a fight, and it is. It's a fight to remain faithful. It's a fight to remain sober. It's a fight to remain vigilant. And it's a fight to stay faithful to God. But we're equipped for it. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10. If you could envision in your mind's eye going to the armory and getting the armor to go fight. What would you get from the armory? Verse number 13 says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, stand stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. What are you going to fight with? Truth. Earlier in the book, Paul says, speaking the truth in love so that people don't get confused. It's not an either-or proposition. No, I love you, and I'm going to speak the truth in… You know, speaking the truth in love does not have to do with the inflection of your voice. Speaking the truth in love doesn't have to do with the sound and the texture and the quality. Somebody, sometimes people just get enamored with, you didn't say it right. It's it's often not that it wasn't said right, it's that you said it. You had the wherewithal to say the truth. That's exactly what we fight with. We don't beat people over the head with it. We just never move off of it. I don't have to attack you with it. I just never give it up. We buy the truth and we sell it not. We stand four square on the truth. And then we speak the truth in love. In fact, it's because we love you that we tell you the truth. Paul would ask it this way. Do I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? It is a fight, but what are we fighting with? Truth. What do you have on the breastplate of righteousness? You know, Daniel said to the king, I haven't done anything against you or anybody else. This is one of the reasons we can't act like it's a physical fight. We're not trying to return evil for evil. We're not trying to reciprocate the behavior. We're trying to act righteously. That's the armor. It's a fight. Yes, how do you fight? With righteousness, with truth, with your feet shod, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do you want to see them saved or lost? Because you have the message that'll save them. You have the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you have to save them. I'm saying give them the message. Give them the gospel. Oh, but you don't understand. They're attacking me, attacking me. You mean like Daniel? You mean like Paul? They stoned him. You mean like Jesus? They crucified him. Is that what you mean they're doing to us? Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. Let me ask you this when haven't the righteous received that treatment from the world? And what's the exhortation? Fight! righteously godly with holiness with truth and with love and with absolutely the gospel take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit which is the word of god i won't cut you i will share with you the seed of the kingdom and let the word get planted into your heart and then you decide whether or not you extract it or you allow it to grow But it is the sword of the Spirit. And if there is some pricking in your heart, it's because of the condition of your heart when the Spirit's sword hits it, not me. What should we do when the world gives itself to sin? We should fight the good fight. Paul says, I did. Service to all men. That's what the Bible says. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. What's it say about some brethren? Esteem them better than yourselves. That's what the Bible says. What's it say about your enemy? Pray for them. Love them. That's what it says. Why? This is a different army with different armor and a different fight. And through all that Paul went through, this same apostle would say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 9, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22, he would say, I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That's Paul's position. Number three, we must prepare to go home to be with God like Jesus. In John chapter 4, verses 31 to 34, Jesus, when wearied and hungry and thirsty, had a Bible study. And at some point within that Bible study or at some point within that window, the disciples went away to get him food to eat. And when they got back, they got to Jesus, they brought the food, and so verse 31, in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. But he said to them, I have meat to eat you know not of which is strange because they went to get food. Clearly, you didn't have any when we left, which is why we went to get it. And now we're back with it, and you're saying you have food. And so they say, therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him all to eat? Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You know, when it comes to the life of our Lord, Jesus never intended to stay here. The return home was always the plan. And so he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, and because finishing his work was the way back home. And from the time we meet Jesus, as early as 12 in the temple, Luke 2 49, his parents are looking for him, and he says, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? In John 8, 29, he characterizes his life, his approach to life, his approach to God. And he says, he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. In John 9 and verse number 4, he said to the disciples, I must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. John 10, 17 and 18, he says to this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And he said, this authority, this authority I have received from my Father. John 17, where he's actually praying just prior to being arrested in the garden. John 18, this is what he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, therefore, Father, glorify me with yourself with the glory which I had before you or with you before the world was. I'm coming home. I've done your work. I finished it. Glorify me with the with the glory I had before we even made the world. On the cross in John 19 and verse number 30, Jesus said, It is finished. His portion in redemption was finished. And after the resurrection and 40 days with the apostles, Acts 1, down to verse number 8, and telling them to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Spirit from heaven. After that, verse number 9 says this, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were, gaz- they were gazing up into the sky while he was going up. Behold, two men stood by in white apparel, saying to them, You men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come again in like manner as you have seen him go. It was always the plan. Let me ask you this, friend. What's your plan? What's your purpose in getting up in the morning and going out into this world? What's your end game? For Jesus, it was always to come, do the work of the Father, and go back home. And if you and I aren't careful, we will get so enamored with this world and its sinfulness that we will take it upon ourselves to fix it. What are you going to do? I'm going to make the world a better place. Okay. How are you going to do that? I'm going to get involved in this activity and in this activity and in this club and be a part of this movement, and I'm going to give my life to this aim, and I'm going to do this and this and this, and by the time we're done, we're going to make the world better. And then what? When did your and my purpose become to make the world better? When did that become the purpose? I thought the purpose was… Be thou faithful unto death, I'll give you a crown of life. And go into all the world and preach the gospel. When did we set that down to save the world? You know, as I like to remind myself, the world has a Savior. His name is Jesus. What's my mission then? I'm here to do the Father's will so I can go home. You know, we sing it, we say it. Maybe it's a little more challenging to live it. Here we are, but strained pilgrims. We're just passing through. This world is not my home. You sure? I'm just passing through. Is that how you're living? My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, friends. What should we do when the world gives itself to sin? I should prepare to go home like Jesus. Keep living faithfully. Keep doing the Lord's will so I can go home when it's over. We should intercede for the world like Abraham. We should be holy in this world like Joseph. We should trust God is in control of the world like Job. And we should pray for strength to endure the world like Daniel. We should fight the good fight of faith. And we should run the race and finish the course like Paul, so that we can prepare to go home like Jesus. You're not a Christian this morning. We're going to beg you to become one. And I say beg because, that, well, that's really the truth of the matter. I, I mean, we implore we you. We plead with you. We ask you. We, we do all that we could within our ability and reason to encourage you to get to know Jesus. For all that this world claims to be and manifests and says it's it is, friends, this is not it. This is the temporal, and we're preparing for the eternal. And without Jesus, you do not want to enter eternity you will be unprepared to meet your God. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart and your mind. The Bible calls it repentance. Jesus says, without it, you'll perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess the name of Jesus and be baptized with him into his death, Romans 6, 3 and 4, so you can rise and walk in newness of life like Jesus. Friends, if you've never done that, you need to. But if you are his child, I hope that the state of the world does not occupy your mind so much that you lose sight of why we're here. I hope that the state of the world doesn't consume you so much that you lose sight of God being in control of the world. I hope it doesn't stop you from praying and pleading for them. I hope like the other members of faith in the Bible, you're inclined rather to love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you so that we can be like Jesus. I hope you'll keep fighting the good fight of faith so we can go home like Jesus. Friends, I want to invite you back tonight. I don't know that the sermons are exactly connected, but I think there is a connection. Tonight, we're going to talk about happiness and how to be happy and why the world can't be happy, and ultimately talk about the fact that you and I have to make a choice as it comes and pertains to our happiness. And friends, God is very clear here. There is a way to be happy, and then there is nothing that one can do apart from that way to be happy. I invite you back tonight to study alone. If you're not a Christian, become one. If you are a Christian, let's keep being faithful to our God. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.